when the best comes last. Now, I have to tell on my wife a little bit, Christina. Actually, I'm probably telling on myself more than anything else. You see, when I come home from work and she comes home from the restaurant, we always like to, like to spend a little bit of time together, and I, that's a good thing. It's a good habit to spend some time together, and and uh, I always look forward to all day. I look forward to coming home and sitting down with Christina, and I tell her a little bit about my day, and she tells me a little bit about her day, and we just just have some time to kind of reconnect. Isn't that isn't that good? Those of you who are married, you do that, right? Right, right, right. Now, I have to tell you kind of how these conversations go. Now, usually, I summarize the events of my day, and usually I can summarize them in about one or two sentences. You know, I went to work and worked a while and ate lunch and worked a little while, came home, right? <laughs> yeah, sometimes I say a little bit more than that. But, but, but invariably, Christina remembers her day in full color, HDR, 3D, surround, sound, virtual reality. <laughs> <laughs> and when you you hear her stories, you you become immersed in the every detail of the experience. <laughs> and and whether it's it's chopping gallons of vegetables at the restaurant, or or meeting countless friends, or you know, I don't know the governor of New York, or someone who whoever came into to the restaurant, right? And or having a front row seat in the latest community events. And I love it. I, I love that about Christina, and you all know you're laughing too. <laughs> she she tells some of her stories here as well. Now something else happens frequently too. I'll come home and, and I'll hear these words: "We had a disaster today," and I'm thinking, "Disaster? I mean, did a tornado come and hit the house and take the whole house? Maybe the maybe the store burned down, or maybe there's an earthquake and it and it leveled the whole town. I don't know. What kind of a disaster did we have? Did I mean?" Did anyone survive? I mean, how many people died? No, no, no. Nobody died. But you see, I was catering a meal for 20 people and I forgot to bring the salad dressing. Or I was halfway to Somerset for my delivery route and I had like food for like 30 different orders and halfway to Somerset I realized I'd forgotten one of my orders. It was a disaster. Well, I'm glad nobody died. I'm glad the house didn't burn down. <laughs> and I have to confess... I can understand disasters like that because when we have a glitch in a computer at work, it's a disaster. I have to fix it. <laughs> and even if nobody dies from their computer glitch, sometimes you think they're going to. Uh, and I have to say, someone like Christina, who has the, the gift of hospitality, a disaster, disaster, is made all the worse when the stakes are high. Now, another thing, I'll, I'll keep telling on Christina, and then I, <laughs> I love you. Um, one of my wife's things that she loves to do is to coordinate weddings. And I can't even tell you how many weddings that she has either coordinated or helped to coordinate since we got married nine and a half years ago. Um, it'll be nine and a half years on September 8th. So that's just a few weeks from now. So uh, um, we like to celebrate our half anniversaries. Is that a bad thing? Anyone else celebrate like monthly? We used to, we used to count, I don't know, I've kind of lost track now, how many months we've been married and, and it's been, uh, I, I can't do the math now. But anyway, in all that time, I can't count how many weddings she has helped to coordinate. And you know, when it's such a special day in the lives of the new couple, you want everything to go just right, especially if you're the wedding coordinator. It's kind of your responsibility to make sure everything goes just Right. And even the smallest oversight, if it's at a wedding, it kind of goes down in the halls of memory, the halls of fame or infamy, depending on what happens. You know, when, when Christina and I got married, 
uh, we weren't going to have a wedding cake. We were just, we weren't even going to have one. Um, we both have kind of agreed, you know, we're not really big fans of cake, but we like cookies, so we'll have lots of cookies and no cake. Well, a few days before the wedding, one of our dear friends said, I'll bake you a wedding cake. So she baked, I mean, it was a three-tier cake. It was, it was beautiful. <laughs> all plant-based, all vegan. Uh, great wedding cake. But the only way it was going to hold up is if it was frozen. Uh, <laughs> because as it thought, it was a very, very soft cake. And we took a little bit longer in the photos before we got to the reception. So by the time we got to the, the reception, we hear this, a disaster is happening. And, and what kind of a disaster is happening? Well, the wedding cake is collapsing. So we, we got our way over to the wedding cake and started cutting. And there were two or three people standing around to, ready to catch the wedding cake as it collapsed as we were trying to, to cut the wedding cake. Um, and it, it went down in, in the hall of, of our memory as one of the funny things that happened at our wedding. Uh, the uh, dear lady that, that baked the cake for us was mortified. <laughs> Uh, a disaster. You know, sometimes, though, a disaster can be an opportunity in disguise. You know, I think this was exactly the case at a wedding that happened about 2,000 years ago in a little village called Cana of Galilee. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to the story in John chapter 2. And we'll just go through the story there just very briefly because there's some beautiful things that we can learn from this story. John chapter 2 Now on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. It was a beautiful wedding, a beautiful occasion of celebration. It was Jesus' family, his 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 relatives, his his kindreds, his earthly uh, the the, uh, kinfolk of Joseph and Mary. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. In verse three, the disaster happens, and they ran out of wine. And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, this is so intriguing because it's at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Of course, we see Jesus had just been baptized by John in the Jordan River. He'd spent 40 days in the wilderness, and during that time, he'd been tempted by Satan. He'd come back and begin his ministry by calling his disciples. And you see there in John chapter 1, if you were to back up, you would see there that story of Jesus calling the disciples and Nathaniel and the conversation there. But then the very first thing he does, he goes back to Galilee and he attends this wedding, of all things, with his kinfolk. Now this wedding isn't like most weddings that you see today. You know, the bride and the groom get married and they have some cookies and cake and punch afterwards and the bride and groom go off into the sunset, right? No, no, no. This is a wedding feast. And so for days, not just a, you know, 30 minutes after the wedding, but for days, they're actually celebrating this feast and celebrating this marriage between these two people. And so as they're getting into this feast, and it's been going on now probably for, for more than a day, maybe two or three days, the supply of grape juice has run low. And finally, the supply has run out. Now, Mary, obviously, because of her relation, I don't know what, how, how she was related to the bride and groom, but, but they were, I would assume that they were kinfolk. And Mary is responsible for making sure that things are going as planned at this beautiful feast, at this reception for the couple. And all of a sudden, they go to dip out some more grape juice. And they take the last dipper full. 
And they go to the cooler and there's no more in the cooler. And they're out. And what are they going to do? The guests are still here and they expect there to be grape juice. And what are we going to do? But Mary knows what to do. Mary goes to Jesus simply, simply saying, they have no wine. This was a disaster. <laughs> With a capital D. But Mary goes to Jesus. And you know, sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder when we pray, why do we wait until we're at our very wits end before we go to Jesus? You know, something else, and I know I'm kind of bringing out the lessons during the story. We know the story. Something else I wonder often. A lot of times when we pray, we go to Jesus and we say, Lord, I need this and I need you to do it this way and this way and this way. I'm out of money and I need you to either A, give me some money or B, I need you to give me a job so I can earn some money, right? We, we, and we pray these kind of prayers and maybe not demanding like that, but, but we, we kind of tell God this and this and this and this is how I, this is how I need it to be answered, right? But Mary just simply goes to Jesus and says to Jesus, they don't have any wine. She doesn't go on and say, I don't, this is what I need you to do. I need you to go down and get some servants to go with you and go down to, to our home in Nazareth and see if, go down to the marketplace and see if you can buy some more wine and bring it back to us. Maybe you'll get back by tomorrow. No, she doesn't say anything. She goes to Jesus and simply says, they have no wine. When we pray, how often, how much better do you suppose it would be to say, Lord, you know, I have so much need. And I'm at the end of my resources. I don't know how you're going to answer this prayer. But I'm trusting you. Mary trusted Jesus to answer that prayer in the way that he knew best. And she, in the depths of her heart, I believe she expected a miracle. I don't really know what she was expecting. But I believe she expected a miracle. And Jesus says to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, when we read this verse, and I've always read this verse and thought, man, Jesus was so rude to his mom. And, and then I, I kind of got to studying into it, and, and Mrs. White brings this out in The Desire of Ages. There's a little bit that gets lost in the translation here. When he says to her, woman, he's not like saying, we wouldn't go, you wouldn't go to your mother here and just say, woman. You, you wouldn't address her that way, but it's gotten kind of lost in the translation um, here. He was addressing her respectfully. I don't know if you would say madam or ma'am. That's still not a good translation because we don't really say that around here so much either. But, but he's addressing her respectfully in a loving way. Mom, you might say. He's also in this same time, he's being respectful to her. He's not giving her the cold shoulder. But at the same time, he is telling her something. He's saying, you know, I have a ministry here. I have, I have a calling. You know that I have this calling. But my relationship to you is not one of where you can tell me what to do. Does that make sense? In other words, all of his life, Jesus has been a loving and, yes, obedient son, respecting his mother and his mother's wishes, doing what she asks him to do, as any good and upstanding son would. But at the same time, Jesus has a father, not a father named Joseph, but a father in heaven, who is his one and true father. And in his divine mission, Mary doesn't have the authority 
to command Jesus. Mary's not commanding him, but Jesus is making very, very clear here that Mary's relation spiritually to him is the same as every one other one of his disciples. My error has not yet come. But Mary is not put off. She has faith that Jesus can and will do something. And she says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. She's not put off. She says, whatever he says, do it. You know, this seems pretty basic. But I think here is another one of the keys. When we want to expect or we want to see God's miracle-working power in our lives, it starts with obedience. Jesus, in this case, did not work a miracle by creating wine out of, or grape juice out of thin air. He could have, he could have just had taken a pitcher, you know, an empty pitcher and poured it and poured grape juice out of it, couldn't he? I mean, it wouldn't have been hard, but he didn't. It started with the obedience of those servants, the faith that they demonstrated by going and doing something that seemed so ridiculous. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself in the story. Mary says, whatever he says to you, do it. And I imagine she's busy, she's bustling around, and she may have just said that and turned and gone right back in the kitchen and kept on working, bringing out more stuff for the guests and for the feast. And so Jesus is standing here with his servants. And over here to the side, he sees six pots of water. Now, I don't imagine that these are just little crocks sitting on the table. Uh, the, the New King James Version says that these hold 20 or 30 gallons. I imagine these are probably sitting on the floor, big stone crocks. And I imagine it might have taken a couple of the servants apiece just to lift those crocks and carry them, maybe more than a couple. But somehow they, they went down to wherever they got their water and they filled those up one by one by one. This was the, a major chore. This was This was work. But they're doing it because Jesus said so. And they fill them up and they bring them back. Pure, clear, cold water. Now, on any other day, on any other occasion, this would have been a beautiful and perfect thing. You've got water to drink. And in that kind of an area, in that arid climate, water was synonymous with life. They could live. They could survive on water. They could serve water to the guests and the guests would not be thirsty. But water was also somewhat ordinary. Even though it was the element of life, at this occasion, that's not what they would expect. It's not what they were, they were expecting. They wanted something more than water because this was a marriage. And to, to go to the guests and pour out water into their glasses that they had been filling with grape juice would have been somewhat of an insult. It would have been like, I'm sorry, we ran out. This is all we have left. All we have to give you is just water. But nonetheless, Jesus says to the servants, go and draw out from those pots that are just full of water, right? Draw it out and take it to the master of the feast. Take it to the head guy. Oh, what are they going to do? But Mary had said, whatever he says to you, do it. And so... The servants do what they're told. They draw it out. I've always wondered at what point did the water turn to grape juice? Did the servants see it turning to grape juice in the pot when they pulled it out? Did they see it turning to grape juice as they were carrying it over to the master of the feast? Or, or, or did it just instantly turn to grape juice as they poured it into his glass? I don't know. 
But all I know that when he took that glass and took a sip, his face just just changed. He starts looking around and he he says, "Wow, that's the best grape juice I've ever had in my life." The next thing he says, he looks over at the groom. Hey, what is this? What have you been hiding all this time? Don't you know everyone serves the best grape juice first? Then after everyone's had plenty to drink, then you bring out the older stuff, the one stuff that doesn't taste as good. But, but you've kept the best until now. Why did you do this? Why did, why, what have you been holding out on us for? And so it was. He had no idea where this wonderful grape juice had come from that the servants knew. And I believe it didn't take long for those servants to tell the story. They were just as amazed as everyone else. But during this time, Jesus, as he was, had quietly stepped aside. And when they started looking, that, that man, where did he go? But his disciples were standing there, the ones he had just called a few days before. And they had an opportunity to share who Jesus was. But I have to ask why. Why would Jesus work his first miracle to supply grape juice for a wedding? I mean, so many times we think of Jesus' miracles, his miracles of healing, saving someone from the throes of death, or even raising the dead. Think of Jesus working miracles in a life and death situation. Think of Peter walking out there on the water, and he starts sinking, and he says, Lord, save me, I'm going to die. And Jesus saves him from death. That's the kind of miracle-working power that I think of. But what about a disaster of just simply not having grape juice at a wedding? This was not a life-and-death thing. This was not a, a crisis. Yeah, it was a crisis. They would have been kind of embarrassed and disappointed maybe, but, but, but no one was going to die if they didn't have grape juice. And, and yeah, they could have served water at the feast. Water would have been sufficient. But I believe here in working this miracle, Jesus gives to us a picture of his grace. Of his grace not just to provide for our lives, but of his grace to provide for our happiness, for our joy, for our pleasure, just to tell us how much he loves you and how much he loves me. You know, I think in working this, this miracle, it's clear that Jesus blessed and he honored the institution of marriage. And I'm so thankful for that. But I'm even more thankful for the picture of grace. When God's grace comes into our lives, it not only saves our lives, but it fills our lives with a richness, with a sweetness that is more than enough. You know, I think it's a key difference, too. When we look at the things that the world has to offer us, the world puts its glamour up front. You see the enticing advertisement. You feel the exhilarating pleasure. And at the end, you have a hangover and a credit card debt, a ruined life, failed hopes. But in the Christian life, instead, up front you see a cross. It seems common and ordinary. <clears throat> but my friends, Jesus is saving the best for last. 
My friends, the best is yet to come because when you step out in faith and you take up the cross of Christ, he goes before you and he transforms the ordinary, humble life into something that's extraordinary by relationship with him. You know, I think it's interesting, too, that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the very front, he provides grape juice for a wedding. For their enjoyment, for their pleasure. And at the very end of his life, he takes a cup of grape juice and makes it a symbol of his blood that was shed for you and for me. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, his blood flows down. Yes, to wash away your sins. Would you, my brother and my sister, would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Would you are evil a victory when there is power? There is power. There's wonder-working power. There's power in the blood of the Lamb. But the power is more than just to forgive our sins. The power is more than just to save our life. The power is to transform your life from something ordinary into something extraordinary for him to save you in his kingdom for eternity. The best is yet to come.